recent email from a very close friend. Your next article, a chronology of your relationship with football. I think you need to write this to bring even more people around to your point of view, but I know it'll be hard for you. Start when you were young. Go all the way through little league, middle school, high school, and your division one college career. Tell the reader what you have always told me about this being when the break occurred. Mention how, despite the fact that you were on a championship team in college, it's the same time the thing is starting to show itself with your father, and you suddenly realize, if you aren't careful, it could happen to you too. You made other plans. You were ready to move on and start the rest of your life, and you did. Then, watching your dad begin to seriously fail. Then watching your father pass away. Then the reaction of other players, coaches, local media, the league. It becomes all about them instead of him and your family. Like this was somehow an unfortunate but necessary fate instead of a travesty and a waste. By showing you are in love with the game and explaining how and why that love soured, this will increase your appeal to those who see your articles as a personal attack on them. This might make them more receptive rather than defensive to your message. By acknowledging the friendships, the work ethic, and the character it helped build, and then concluding it wasn't worth it because of the unseen costs, this will increase your appeal to those who can't understand what you've written to this point. They see you as some kind of renegade who was lucky enough to essentially play at the highest level and then turned his back on it. Write this other side to the story and it might make them see that this isn't hateful vitriol. It's heartbreak and devastation. It's that you realize this thing you fell in love with and built your life around when you were a kid actually ruined much of your father's life led to excruciating final days, has destroyed countless lives and families, and no one seems to care. And it's now your fear that parents are basically forcing their kids to subject themselves to the same thing.
There was a time in my life when the memories were fresh, but eventually they began to fade and almost completely disappeared into the subconscious recesses of my mind. It took my father's passing almost three decades later to bring them back in an effort to make sense of all those things that I had left behind. After all, it's undeniably part of the fabric of what I became. To deny it would be a lie. But in confronting the past, I've also been forced to confront the hazardous and ever-changing nature of memory itself. Empty Colosseum, Colossus of steel and stone, stands quiet and aloof, a gray monolith in the dwindling light. When I walk alone down the ramp into its cavernous field of play, it's like going back in time, traveling back into the closed-off regions and recesses of my mind. This privilege, given the former gladiators to come and go, somehow the security guards always know. Take as much time as you want, they say, like I'm a veteran at a memorial or a victim to a crash site. A special pass to gain entry to a controlled area where only a few have gone and known. Emerging from the darkness of the tunnel into the bright shining light, standing now under the north goalpost, I take in the scene, the only person there, along with 75,000 vacant chairs, and I close my eyes. This is my moment. No one can interrupt it. There's nobody here, and the old feelings start to come back ever so slightly, slowly but surely, an energy pulsing through limbs, heartbeat now firm, blatant and palpable, pulsating in my neck. But I'm not here to relive past glories. I'm here on a search, a quest, an investigation of past events that impacted our lives. I open my eyes to see. I look over to where my father made that block. I've seen so many times on old grainy films, opening up the lane for the winning score that brought Bedlam down in the northwest corner. That was the flashpoint that started there and spread like wildfire up through the rest of the stadium and then out across the hills and forests to the west and eastward across the campus and into town and then across the entire state. I walk out onto the field, open, crowned, beautiful expanse of green, cut in brilliant white lines, geometric, ordered. That's something about the game, its structure, its rules, 
its lines that appeals to the innate need for clear structure in all of us. If you do this, a certain thing results. If you fail to do this, another thing results. If you violate this rule, you and your team are penalized, and so on and so forth. Players get addicted, at least accustomed, to this structure, and when the game is over for them, they miss it. And I have missed that structure in the civilian world, that clear, defined goal, clearly articulated missions, immediate favor or accountability when successful or not, a meritocracy where performance mattered more than family name, genes, lineage, or connections. But at what cost? The thought fades. I see the spot where 25 years later, about 60 yards across the field from where dad made his play, one of so many, I made a touchdown saving tackle that helped preserve a win and a championship season, but knocked me unconscious for a moment, sending me into a week of dazed and uncertain days, voices ringing, lights garish and bright, sounds too loud, senses seeming to short circuit, surge and wane, until it all resolved. Thirty years later now, a faded memory of a time I can barely recall, and I keep walking. The wins and losses crossed my mind, the hits that left me staggered, and the sound of the crowd as it roared. The 89 game against Houston, with our backs to the wall. We'd lost to Texas the week before, and a team that had scored 95 points was coming in, and we beat them. It was the loudest place I've ever witnessed. This is something fans do not know. The sound in a stadium all gathers on the surface and dwarfs what you hear in the stands. I had to scream at teammates standing next to me, and they still couldn't hear what I was saying. Nor could I hear them from a foot away. But the scoreboard said we won, and the cacophony continued after the game was over. We could hear it in the locker room. We could hear it an hour later as we prepared to board the buses. The fans never left. They stayed back to see us get on the buses. It was unbelievable. We went out and boarded and the buses pulled away. And there were throngs of people standing in what seemed five or six deep behind the security ropes. The police holding them back, yelling, cheering, screaming as we pulled away. I will never forget it. But why was it so important? The question never entered my mind until years later, 
and I never got a good answer. What did it cost in the end? Events compressed into a short span of years, ephemeral fleeting victories, the price of which we found out was not brief and immediately paid, nor neatly wrapped up and securely ensconced in that time, but would lie concealed and hidden like a patient demon waiting to unleash its insidious wrath on the unwary. Oh, we would learn. And our education and the costs plays out over years, across decades and even generations. And even though they now know about the price paid, the throngs still line up to wait for a brief glimpse of the heroes that come so easily these days. Our gods come cheap in America. You can become one just by scoring a touchdown or putting a basketball through a hoop or hitting a home run. But when you no longer do those things, you're not only no longer a god, you are forgotten. It's an indictment of American culture. We make various excuses for behaving like this. We legitimize our attitudes by saying the man makes a lot of money and is set for life, whatever that means, as if this gives sanction to the mindset. My answer is, I made more money as a lawyer in my first year out of law school than my father ever did in any of his nine seasons in the NFL. I have little time or tolerance for your sentiments. I sincerely hope you never have to see the look in your father's eyes when he doesn't recognize you anymore. I genuinely wish you never have to sit in a hospice room with him for eight long and excruciating days after they've turned off all his life support when the doctors told you it would only take 48 hours. I wouldn't want this for even my worst enemy if I had one. But as for your opinion, keep clinging to it like a life preserver. It's called an enabling mechanism. Was it worth it? No. It was never worth the costs. None of it. But I already know this. And I find myself looking up at everything new. The Colossus is twice the size of what it was in my day. Yet, the program wins as many games as we used to lose. No matter. I chuckle at the irony of it all. The building and adding on continues, unabated. More and more seats are empty. The glory days are gone, I think, forever. Maybe they will downsize. Not a chance. I've had my fill. It doesn't take much. I walk back 
the way I came toward the north end zone. I do not look back. I'm now moving quicker than I did when I started. It's time to get out of here. When I get to the tunnel, I do not pause. I do not stop, turn around, and take one last look. I don't even slow my pace. I walk straight up the tunnel, briefly into the darkness. I see the light at the top of the ramp beckoning me onward, and it grows brighter and brighter with each step. This is Glenn Hines. Each episode of the Welcome to the Machine podcast is simultaneously published on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Audible, and Amazon Kindle. Thank you for listening.